today on Ag News Daily. The big trade issue is China, of course. China is, is a, the, along with the United States, are the two leading world powers. Agricultural products and agriculture needs foreign markets to survive. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Dawson Schmidt today. Dawson, you are co-hosting. You've been doing it for a few weeks now. How are you feeling getting into this role? I'm feeling pretty good. It was a ro- definitely a rocky start, but I think it's starting to smooth out a little bit now, trying to get my bearings on exactly how to do things and trying to get accustomed to yours and Ashton style. And it's, I think it's going pretty well. That's true. We definitely have our own styles of how we host and share news, but I think you've been doing a great job so far. So hopefully our listeners enjoy having you tune in every now and then. Well, I hope they enjoy me being on as well. <laughs> if they don't, they just won't listen, I guess. I don't know. Well, I guess we got to give them something to listen for. So with that, Delaney, what are you watching on the Newswire today? Well, that was a fantastic segue, Dawson. But, you know, the Newswire has been a little slow today, but we do have some fresh export sale news today. Early Thursday morning, USDA received a report of a 132,000 flash sale headed for delivery to China. We also saw an additional purchase of 260,000 tons headed to an unknown destination. But as a whole, exports really have been pretty strong here over the past couple of weeks. But unfortunately, it's kind of taking a backseat right now to what's going on as far as weather is concerned. But soybean sales uh, overall here, we've seen a net export of 189,000 tons. They've grown about 62% this week compared to the week prior. Corn's also about 44% higher this week and 23% higher in the wheat market. So we are continuing to see demand be there. We're just really seeing that news overshadowed by what's going on in weather. Well, Delaney, something that I am watching today is that recently we had the news about the minority debt relief that's been going around. And this has kind of been a really progressive story. Uh, Recently, a federal judge that had temporarily blocked the uh, debt relief from going through in Wisconsin, they did rule that that was okay to go through. Well, now a federal judge in Florida is blocking the relief claiming, or now that a farmer in in the state had filed a lawsuit as well. So the Florida, the Florida farmer who is a sweet potato, corn and cattle filed a lawsuit against the USDA to try and pretty much claim the, uh, that the program was unconstitutional, like many other farmers have also claimed uh, him as a farmer. He's about $300,000 in debt, but he is un- unable to apply for the debt relief for himself. And so the, and so the federal judge that had started to block the program from going through now is trying to keep that injunction going temporarily until they can kind of uh, get a case going. Uh, Sounds like things are going to be a little bit backed up. So that might not even happen real soon. So just a lot of stuff going on with this one story and a lot of progressions. It certainly sounds that way. And Dawson, another big story, especially for folks in the cattle industry, has been this beef transparency issue that we've seen, of course, Senators Grassley, Rounds, and Tester bring up in Congress. We're we're starting to potentially see some new legislation that could be brought to the forefront here to 
add some quote unquote transparency to the beef industry. But we saw a hearing earlier this week, which called into question, of course, the beef transparency issue. And amongst other things, it highlighted some possible changes, but um, senators have also heard a good deal of defense for the current system and keeping things as is. So it's going to be interesting here to see who kind of wins out in this direction, but you'll you'll see in the newswires, I'm sure, especially those three senators I mentioned have been very vocal in saying that things need to change. The Packers and Stockyards Act is outdated. We need to go about making sure that producers are getting fair prices in the marketplace and legislation needs to back that up. So it's going to be interesting here to see what uh, what side of that wins out. But there are folks in favor of leaving things in place as is. Well, there's definitely a lot of news going on in the livestock sector and kind of keeping along with that and moving over to Uruguay, a, the Montes del Plata, if I said that correctly, a local meatpacking subsidiary of Japan's NH Foods, signed an agreement recently to create Uruguay's first carbon neutral cert- certificate for beef. And that's according to Pulp Mill's website. And so pretty much what they're doing is that they're trying to get 200 ranchers uh, who graze their cattle on the Montes del Plata lands will that they'll initially participate in the certification program and then the program will be developed and audited under the international standards and will later expand to include more farmers so a lot of stuff going on with trying to get pretty much carbon neutral beef so it sounds like many different sectors and industries in the U.S. and around the world are kind of doing the same thing but this is kind of a recent update that I haven't heard of specifically in this way. The carbon neutral beef is interesting to me, and I'd like to understand that better. Does that just mean we're feeding cattle carbon neutral corn and soybean process? Are we doing something special with raising the cattle in a certain way? I don't fully understand how that all adds up. Yeah, I'm really interested too, because I mean, beef emits a lot of emissions and trying to, I guess, maybe make sure that enough sequestering practices are going on to kind of make that more net neutral, I guess. I guess that kind of makes sense. But it's, again, this has probably largely been driven more so on the consumer front and agriculture is trying to figure out how we fit into this carbon plan. uh, And this just sounds like one piece of that plan. Yeah, for sure. And it's I'm really interested to see on how this kind of plays out. And it just seems like there's a lot of buzzwords going around, but Mm -hmm. we have yet to figure out how exactly this will all look in the future. Yeah, very true. But, you know, I actually have one other piece of livestock related news myself. This is turning our attention here a little bit to China, however. A hog futures there domestically have finally seen a little bit of a turnaround, surging nearly 7% today on signs of at least maybe a near term low for the Chinese market. Um, Of course, we're watching a lot of supplies flood their marketplace as they're rebuilding their hog herd. They're also continuing to import quite a bit from the United States. And we've seen soy or we've seen hog prices uh, hit some of their lowest levels in quite some time. But we are anticipating here to see a reduction in Chinese pork imports, which could soften some demand for U.S the U.S. market. But uh, both beef and pork wholesale prices 
have been down sharply over the past couple of days here to the past week or so on signs that food service supply lines have finally been restocked following the pandemic. We've also seen USDA's cold storage reports show we're not at a we're not at a point where we've got oversupply. So I think we should start to kind of see things sort themselves out here should be maybe at an equilibrium as far as what we need domestically, what we're exporting, and what we've got in cold storage. So hopefully going to see the protein market even itself out. But really what it sounds like here, the big headline is that we have gotten through the supply chain issue that we had put forth due to COVID. China is also kind of right on board with us. They're also getting through their supply chain issue too, it sounds like. Well, Delaney, one last thing that I have, I don't know, do you remember a couple weeks back when Anheuser-Busch was actually trying to do giveaways with free beer to people that got vaccinated? Uh, No, but I'll take some free beer. (laughs) Well, I think that is one thing that they actually were doing. I'm not sure if that fully came through and someone actually won that. I haven't been keeping my, I haven't really been keeping up on that, but however, JBS now is coming out and asking consumers if they want free meat for a year in or uh, in exchange for getting the COVID-19 shot. So pretty much they announced on Thursday that they would give free beef, pork, and chicken for the next year to 50 U.S. families that participated in the company-sponsored vaccination clinics over the coming weeks. The company said that they've made great progress in their vaccination rates that actually came under fire when many employees were getting Vax or we're not getting vaccinated. And when the first when the pandemic first hit that many people were getting infected. And so a lot of those companies came under fire when they had plant closures. So not sure if this is just a way to slap the bandaid on and kind Mm -hmm. of kind of make them look better or kind of what their thought process is behind that. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely could be a good assumption that you make there, Dawson. They did receive a lot of slack during that time. So this might be their way of kind of making good on their public persona. For sure. But I tell you what, I really don't have any other news except for, of course, we've got to talk markets and a little bit of commentary here heading into talking markets for today. But we have gotten, especially here around central Iowa, Dawson, I know you're back home today in northeast Iowa, but we've gotten quite a bit of rain here over the past couple of days. And that has really put the pressure here on commodity markets. Um, we talked with Ed Valley yesterday, but I'll just add here Eric Snodgrass, who's of course another big name in the ag forecasting sector, did mention that he's expecting to see continued rainfall events over the next five days or so here, but in a pretty narrow corridor across the Corn Belt. So we are going to see some rain in some key growing areas, but we're also going to be missing some rain in some key growing areas. So the market is going to have to make a decision here soon to decide uh, what they what news they're going to be trading. But today we saw corn extend to some pretty low levels, uh, the lowest level since February. And soybeans also fell, of course, on news of wet weather. But we are continuing to see Especially in the Minneapolis wheat contract, uh, prices are finding some support there due to poor crop conditions. But let's hop right in here and chat markets for today. The July corn contract shed 11 cents to close at 6.53 and a quarter. The Dece up a quarter of a cent to close at 5.36. Soybeans today, weakness throughout the complex as the July contract 
shed 13 and three quarters cents lower to end at 13.71 and a quarter. The November down eight and a half cents to close at 12.91 and three quarters. And in the Chicago wheat pit today, the July contract shed 10 cents to close at 6.51 and a quarter. The September down 11 and three quarters to close at 6.52 on the nose. Hopping over. To take a look at the livestock market today, we saw a lot of mixed signals today across the cattle complex to tell us what's going on there. But in August, live cattle today down 25 cents to close at 122.62 and a half. The October up 10 cents to close at 128.27. And in feeder cattle today, strength is the August contract added $1.45 to close at 157.15. The September up $1.12 and a half to close at 159.20. And in lean hawks, we saw weakness today as the July contract took advantage of their expanded limits today to close down 450 to end at 102 cents. The August down two dollars and two cents to close at 98.70. And wrapping things up here to close with the class three dairy milk futures, the July contract up two cents today to close at 16.62. The August up 19 cents to close at 16.60. Now for today's interview. Ashton is off for the next two days, but she's graciously made sure that we are taking care of Dawson here on the podcast. Today, we are going to be talking to former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. Well, today we are talking to Dan Glickman, who is a former congressman, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Apparently, he likes to call himself his excellence or your excellence. So, Dan, thank you for coming on today and taking the time out of your busy schedule, I assume, to chat with us. I'm delighted to be with you. And you don't have to call me excellency. Uh, That's a joke. (laughs) Okay. Well, Dan, before we get started talking here, I, I think we have a lot of great things to talk about, including one of your, your books or your book that's coming up. So before we really get into that conversation, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background? Well, I'm from Wichita, Kansas. I grew up there. My family's from there. And uh, I have a fairly long political career, starting on the Wichita School Board. Then I was elected to Congress in 1976, served 18 years, the entire time I was on the House Agriculture Committee. And then in uh, 1995, I became U.S. Secretary of Agriculture under uh, President Bill Clinton, served for about six years as Secretary of Agriculture. And then um, I uh, had a brief time where I taught, ran a program at Harvard University, the Institute of Politics. And then I had a change in my career and I became the head of the Motion Picture Association of America for about six years after that. And then in the last 10 years, I've been at a place called the Aspen Institute and also working on domestic and global hunger issues. Uh, So kind of a long career with a lot of different things that I've done. That's certainly interesting, Dan, to see the uh, interesting career you've had here in politics and really a lot of different facets, it sounds like. I'm curious, tell us a little bit more. You were under the Clinton administration when you served as Secretary of Agriculture, is that correct? I was. That It was a strange thing. I had just lost my last election to Congress in 1994, and the then Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Mike Espy, had to resign. Uh, and so uh, Bill Clinton, uh, uh, asked me to be the new Secretary of Agriculture, and I had a big ally because the Senate, U.S. Senate Majority Leader at the time was Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. So he mm-hmm. uh, was, I think, somewhat instrumental in getting me the job. 
<laughs> How neat. So uh, serving under the Clinton administration, obviously, you guys put forth a lot of trade policy, NAFTA being a big one during that administration. Talk to us a little bit about what that process was like. And if you will go a little further here, what do you think of trade policies that we've been enacting as of lately? What do you anticipate, I guess, to see here under the Biden administration? Well, certainly, I, I think Bill Clinton was probably the most pro-trade president we've had in since the Second World War. I mean, he, we did NAFTA and uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and uh, the WTO accession. It, all, it was during the Clinton administration. And it wasn't 100 percent popular because there were some groups that felt that the U.S., uh, at least some parts of industry, including agriculture, were not always supportive of everything. But by and large, I thought it was positive for America that we were engaged in, in trade. And, and, and right now, it's a lot tougher for us. Uh, uh, a lot of markets are closed to American products, both agriculture and non-agricultural products. The big trade issue is China, of course. China is, is a, the, along with the United States, are the two leading world powers. Uh, China is not always the easiest country to deal with. Uh, uh, they uh, often steal intellectual property. They, they create a, a variety of global problems for us. But on the other hand, they are huge purchasers of agricultural products. So we've got to learn how to calibrate this relationship with China, how to, you know, uh, deal with them on the things that are doing wrong, but but realize that uh, we need them in terms of uh, their markets. Well, Dan, I want to kind of talk about your book a little bit. It's of course, called Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, On the Farm and at the Movies. And I want to touch on the at the movies portion because I think that's really interesting. And you were the chairman of the Motion Picture Association of America for six years. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in that? Because I feel like that's a, a bit different than working on the farm or working in Congress. Well, it, it was a strange move. I used to tell people half jokingly that while in agriculture, I would grow popcorn. And then when in the movies, I would sell popcorn. You used to get a, a few chuckles. I don't know if you're chuckling or not, but some people kind of, you know, laugh at that. But but it, it's interesting. There are a lot of parallels. That is, uh, we uh, agricultural products and agriculture needs foreign markets to survive. And the same way is true of the entertainment business. Movies and television need access to foreign markets uh, to survive. And a lot of Similar trade issues are involved in both. And uh, I had spent a lot of time, in addition to the Agriculture Committee, on the Judiciary Committee, where we dealt with intellectual property issues and, and film piracy. And so uh, while it may seem that the food and, and entertainment don't necessarily relate to each other, uh, when you're trying to engage in trade and sell American products overseas, there were a lot of parallels. And and, a lot, and I, just to make it clear, I was not hobnobbing very much with the movie stars. Most of my time was in Washington dealing with the trade and uh, uh, tax policy, those kinds of things. 
That's certainly interesting. And I want to ask too, some of the highlights, I guess, that are going to be in your book, which releases soon as I understand it, are one thing I wanted to dive a little bit further on because you obviously served as Secretary of Agriculture. You've got a pretty close affinity for agriculture and food and nutrition, it sounds like. But you grew up a little bit different, maybe perhaps than a lot of other folks that work in agriculture, growing up Jewish in the 1950s in Kansas. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, and and uh, we didn't. Uh, I didn't come from an agriculture background. I, I my dad was in the scrap iron business, uh, recycling business, and also in the oil business. But I, uh, working with him and for him over the years, we used to do a lot of business with farmers all over the state in terms of uh, oil and gas leases and and buying a lot of scrap iron and recycled materials from farmers. And so I, I be he he used to talk to me. He said that the best people to do business with were farmers. And I used to go out with him. And even though I didn't know a lot about farm and agriculture policy, I did meet a lot of people in agriculture and farmers. And so when I when I got into Congress and got on the agriculture committee, it was not a strange experience for me because I felt like I, I, I at least knew how to communicate with farmers and knew what their problems were. Well, Dan, it sounds like you've had quite the journey here. So why don't we talk a little bit about what this has been like? I mean, you've done all of these things and now you're writing this book. What are some of the the key themes that we are going to see in your autobiography? Well, um, I, I'd say the first key thing has to do with the fact that I think that humor, especially self-deprecating humor, kind of laugh, as I say, laughing at myself, is, was, has been key to my success in life. And, and in a sense, we've become, as a country, a humorless society. We, At least in politics, it's become rather bitter and toxic. And I found over the years that the most successful politicians and most successful people are folks with good senses of humor, uh, our great leaders, uh, presidential leaders, you know, whether it was Lincoln or Kennedy or JFK or Reagan, our, our, our political leaders generally are those that can laugh at themselves, especially with self-deprecating humor. So I, I raise that because, you know, I've had my ups and downs in life and in politics, but almost every jam I ever got into, I was able to uh, extricate myself by, you know, having a, a, under, a sense of humor and, and understanding that that uh, that makes people like you more, and it, it, you will be. It will be a less contentious atmosphere, and we need more of that in America, not less. And the second lesson, as I look through all the vignettes of my life, and most of the book is various stories about things that happened to me, or I was involved with in Congress or on, at the Department of Agriculture, was the power of listening. And I find that too many people in politics like to talk more than they listen. And my mother used to say that the reason why you have two ears and one mouth is you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. And because she says you'll learn something that way. And so that's another theme in my book is I go through all of the incidents and all of the challenges that I faced. Had that sense of humor plus listening had a lot to do with the, the positive things that I was able to accomplish. Well, I'm certainly excited to read this book. It, you definitely, your humor comes through even chatting with you right now. So I'm sure it's going to come through in your book as well. Dan, for those folks who do want to check your book out, what's it called and how can they find it? So it's called Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, on the Farm and at the Movies. 
It's available on Amazon or the University of Kansas Press, which you I don't have the actual website, but people can find it. Or I assume it will be at a lot of bookstores, you know, as well. So uh, we really start marketing it towards the end of this week. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm not expecting this to outsell Harry Potter, although that would be great. But uh, it is I think it's a pretty good it's a pretty good story. And and, uh, you know, and, and and I hope people don't think it's too corny. I, there are a lot of jokes in this book. Uh, I've done my best to make sure that they're not politically incorrect during this modern times. So uh, I think people might enjoy it. Fantastic. I'm sure they certainly will. Dan, thank you so much again for joining us today. Certainly a pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, again, a big thank you there to Dan. And I believe his book is available now, folks, if you'd like to check it out. I think he's just a really funny guy. He has a very interesting background. I think his book will probably be filled with a little humor. So definitely one to check out. For sure, Delaney. It sounds like he had a lot of good things to say. And uh, I don't know if I'd be checking that book out, but I have many on my list. So we'll see if I ever get to that. But with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.